You are listening to Necropolis on Hessian Firm. Please visit hessianfirm.com for metal reviews, interviews, analyses, lifestyle articles, as well as releases from the label. Welcome to the first episode of Necropolis. I am its host, Jason, also known as Lone Goat from Goatcraft. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on interesting people from all spectrums of extreme metal. I'm glad to have the very talented Jesse Jolly as the first episode subject. Howdy, Jesse. Thanks for taking the time to do this podcast. I know the uh, NBA finals are going on today at the Tampa Buccaneers, and hopefully they win the Stanley Cup. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's honestly about as much as I pay attention to sports. And uh, also, too, man, thank you so much for having me and involving me in this. I think it's going to be a good venture, and I'm excited. Oh, yeah, of course. Great, phenomenal musician. Um, You've been in contact for like 15 years, you know, um, Mm -hmm. all the way back to After Death when we were in that band. Um, I remember, I think it was like at the Masquerade or something like that in St. Pete where I ran into you. And from there, uh, I had heard Blast Masters and Crimson Massacre, um, and I wanted to uh, bring you into the fold, which you immediately clicked with everybody. So definitely a great musician all around. I appreciate it, dude. I really do. And it's, uh, yeah, I guess sometimes it has, like, I'm not real, real good at, like, when it comes to, like, taking compliments. Uh, and I, I don't know, I guess that's kind of normal in certain circumstances because I'll never be anything other than just a kid from the hills of Tennessee that's pretty much that's where I'm from and that's that's it you know and so I, I definitely appreciate the kind words and uh yeah of course yeah. it's well deserved like how many strings are on your bass guitar <laughs> um currently right now I'm at most I'm most at home with a five but I know what you're referring to because I did go through a period there for probably about 10 10 12 years I think where I was exclusively using seven strings from yeah, California. That- that's lunacy. That's more than what most guitarists use. And, uh, and I, I really fell in love with with the capabilities of that instrument. But as I um, moved, you know, to Tampa, and then I started putting it into the context of like death metal and black metal. One of the first things I realized is that you couldn't really hear the higher register. And so that's, that's one of a few of the reasons why I sort of uh, kind of digressed away from that uh from that type of instrument yeah i still i still love it but you know it just number one it was 95 dollars for a set of strings you know what i mean for a good set and not to mention yeah it just uh it was just a big unruly instrument you know yeah definitely the stage presence you had with that was amazing you know you're holding that big freaking bass all those strings on it while doing vocals too and you're 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 all around a great bassist like um you can play with your fingers and you know and picks really well um and i remember like in after death like when we started writing new music and someone would show you a riff you immediately picked up that riff on the spot like you just know the instrument all around it yeah i mean it's uh that's kind of a a self-defense mechanism you know like i really really try super super hard to to make sure that anything that i'm involved in i make it as easy as possible for everyone around me because I think we've all been in a situation to where we're trying to bring someone into the fold. And then it's like, Oh man, this guy, he's, he's a cool dude, but he's just not getting it quite as quickly, you know, or stuff like that. So I just never wanted that to be said about me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's- yeah. That's a great point. A lot of musicians, especially in metal, like when you go to a local level and even some of the bigger bands, 
um they're very very idiosyncratic with their approach like they have their own like harmonic language and mm -hmm. branching outside of that is difficult for some people um and a lot of people don't know which notes they're actually playing uh, on guitar or bass and they just play by ear and tabs so um, this definitely a, a great attribute that you have with uh, just being able to immediately pick up riffs and especially complex riffs too like um it's kind of like you know like th that that instrument you had that seven string bass that's mm -hmm. more of something that you see in like super technical death metal bands so mm -hmm. when you when you brought that thing up on stage it immediately si signaled to everyone watching you um yeah this guy knows his shit he's really talented and they're about to see a great performance. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. And I definitely tried to deliver on that, <clears throat> you know, and it definitely fit the context of certain bands a little bit better than it did others. Like when I was in Crimson Massacre, I was using uh, the seven string. And uh, the guy that wrote the majority of the music for that, James, like he was just a, a technical wizard. Like he was just a yeah. really, really good fluent player. And, um, you know, so it got a little bit more attention in that sort of a project as opposed to the more straight ahead black metal stuff that I was doing. You know what I mean? So it's, yeah, it definitely has its place. Yeah. Speaking of Crimson Massacre, um, and like I said, I, I had heard of that band before I had met you because I think they're from Houston, I believe. So people kind of knew about them in Texas, which I'm from Texas. But mm -hmm. when I moved back to Tampa, there was people in Tampa that knew about it, like Belial from uh, uh, Nocturnus AD. Um, he was a big fan of Crimson Massacre, and he told me, like, how no riffs are, like, reintroduced into the song. So there's, like, this perpetual development aspect to it. Um, <laughs> yep, you're right. <laughs> so, yeah, it's definitely it's very heady music. It's, you know, very brainy um, death metal. So uh, speaking about death metal, um, you have a, a newer project called Blight Mass. Um, it was originally called uh, Purgatory Unleashed. Um, and they're also based from France, which is, did not expect that coming from you. But uh, um, how did you meet those guys? How did you, you know, get into the fold of that band? Well, it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting story, I guess, from my perspective, because basically um, one project that I do that's not really metal related, uh, it's the Lowell Me to Larvae stuff. And it's kind of akin to the Goatcraft. I know that you're familiar with that project and Goatcraft's amazing, but that's a different conversation. But uh, so the one of the guitar players for then Purgatory Unleashed reached out to me on Facebook and he was like, Hey man, I really uh, love your project. Lull me to larvae. It's very, you know, very orchestral and I love it. It makes me, you know, feel. and so he kind of touched base. And then over the course of the months and years, he was like, Hey, you know, we're recording our first album with Purgatory Unleashed. It would be a great honor if you would uh, record vocals for maybe one of the songs, it would be awesome. And so I, I agreed to do it. And um, I sent it back to them. And from what I understand, they played my version of the one song that I did compared to what the current vocalist for Purgatory Unleashed was doing. And he was pretty offended by it. He was like, <laughs> um, no, you let me, I can do it better. I'll do it better or whatever. And they were all looking at each other and looking at this guy like, no, you're not going to do it better. You know, and that's coming from them, not necessarily me. And so uh, next thing that happened is basically the guy was like, okay, well, if he's so good, make him record the whole album. <laughs> and uh, I did that. I recorded, yeah. I rewrote all the lyrics to it because the lyrics uh, in some cases didn't make a uh, quite, quite enough sense, I think, because they were French translations 
being sung in English by someone who is, is French. And Did so you, the, uh, sorry to break in. Sure. Did you learn any French from them? Because I, I was trying to get down my French R yesterday, which being <laughs> Anglophonic is really, really difficult to get down that French R. It's more like an H, but it's not. And you have to pull yeah. it from like the back of your throat. Um, yeah. so I know what you're talking about, too, because the word for uh, map is uh, carte. And it's like C-A-R-T-E, I think. And it's, that is the hardest damn word for me to say in French. And, uh, and you know, JP laughs at me because it's pretty easy. He's just like, Cat. and I'm like, no, but that doesn't feel good on my throat. But uh, yeah, I did, uh, to answer your question, I did learn a little bit of French because I knew that I would be going over there at some point, you know, and I, I, I learned enough to get me in and out of an airport and order food and this, that, and the other. But it's a definitely a very complex language. I see. So you actually went over to France to record with them. Well, I recorded at home, but uh, what we wanted to do was to do a tour to support the album that had just came out. Because like I said, the old singer, he got pissed off and left. I stepped in and uh, I said, you know, what I recommend, guys, honestly, because um, the term purgatory is not as threatening of an expression as maybe it is culturally, possibly in Europe or in France, you know. So when you say to me, purgatory unleashed, all I think about is, some people who are not quite evil, but not quite good being unleashed upon the earth. Like to me, that just didn't sound that threatening. And I was like, we should possibly consider changing the name to something a little bit more um, insidious, if you will. And so I threw forth a couple of ideas, just potentials. And then we settled on blight mass because like the word mass has like several different meanings to it. And then the word blight uh, also has several different meanings, a couple different meanings. And so it's uh, to me, it kind of like was a more all-encompassing uh, kind of a vibe for just an old-school death metal band. And so that's what we went with. Yeah, speaking about the sound, you said old-school death metal. I definitely hear in some of the songs um, a very thrash-infused type of death metal sound that um, the, the the music conveys. Um, so you have that aspect on the, that album, Severed From Your Soul. Um, but you also have that one song, To Have Bled the Price, which is oh, yeah. a complete... 180 from those <laughs> other songs where yeah. there's almost like a typo negative vibe to certain sections of that song where it kind of slows down and gets cleaner yeah. you're right and uh and uh, just to touch on that i mean we're we are definitely huge fans of typo negative but uh blight mass is also i mean don't be surprised if one day if blight mass releases a, a, a black metal album just a straight up black metal album don't be surprised because like even uh, the album we're working on now um our second album uh, it's called uh harbinger of lucidity uh the title track on that album is very 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 black metal and so it's uh you know both both genres i think are extremely just very very big passions of mine and so i, I do tend to like black metal a little bit more deep in my soul, I think, than, than death metal. Love them both. But uh, yeah, I mean, so don't be surprised if you hear quite a bit of like black metal and or some typo influences coming out of that stuff, because it's definitely sort of ingrained in us, I think. Yeah, I, I definitely know not to expect, you know, expected things from you. So um, one thing on that album that is really off kilter is that you guys covered Black Star from Carcass's Swan Song album which is a really, really reviled death metal or rock and or like death and roll type of sound that they had in that album after their peak where they went through their grindish death metal. Um, and I, like necroticism is where that a lot of people kind of 
think that Carcass started like having a downward trajectory, but with uh, Swan Song, they totally embraced rock music, and you know that split the fandom. Um, and you decided to do a cover, um, which is really, really that's a bold statement right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, I'm going to give myself away a little bit here because Carcass is like one of the bands that growing up in Tennessee. Like I didn't really hear about, or I didn't have a lot of access to, to a lot of stuff up there. Cause I mean, the internet was just really coming out by the time I moved here, it was only becoming very available up there. So I would, I stuck to a lot of the greats, you know, that I knew like right out of the gate, DSI, Cannibal Corpse, Cradle of Phil, Dark Funeral, stuff like that. Like, uh, but when it came to, to Carcass, like I didn't have as much experience with them, I think until they positioned us to, to cover that song. So it, uh, I hate to, to kind of shoot myself in the foot saying this, but like I, I hadn't been as familiar with the song going into it, but I tried to do the best that I could vocally to do it justice. I see. Because, so that was you know, more of their concoction of doing that cover. All right. It definitely was. Yeah. When I was a little kid, uh, I was a huge Carcass fan and I liked it liked it all the way up to necroticism which is you know like i said kind of like where the downward trajectory started but uh yeah i actually bought swan song um when i was a kid and i was conflicted with it because it's rock infused death metal um which i think death metal and rock should be completely separate you know as a purist um so it's it's very interesting that you guys did that cover um so speaking about that new album, you said uh, there might be some black metal aspects to it. Is it also going to have very diverse touch points like uh, Severed from Your Soul? I think so. It's uh, we it's sort of different from Severed. What we wanted to do with this one and probably all albums moving forward is keep it between uh, 30 to 35 minutes, maybe 40 minutes max. You know, like Severed uh, being the first album, like, a lot of those songs those guys had lying around for some years you know and so it was really just we wanted to kind of clean the plate um you know and so when we went into writing this new one uh we decided to kind of keep it a little bit shorter um i, I guess i should mention in terms of blight mass it did start in france but um there was a little bit of a conflict when it came to what the future of the band was going to be because like um, all the original members are from France, but uh, Jean-Philippe or uh, JP is, uh, as we call him, he ended up, he was like, no, I want to do music. It is my life. I want to do this. And so he ended up moving to Montreal with his wife, like about six months ago, like right in the middle of the pandemic, like, you know, yeah. really putting his cards on the table. And so he you lives in Montreal. Guys or something? <laughs> yeah. And so basically the other guys, uh, you know, they're all, uh, you know, Johnny, uh, Sebastian and, uh, Eno, like all three are really just sweet guys, great dudes. Um, but they, they weren't in a position to where they could just pick up and move. And I don't, I, can't, I don't really blame them. And, you know, and for any, uh, real band to have a, a good, good future, unless it's like a legacy act or something like that, you know, you all have to live within proximity of, of one another, such as that will justify successful touring, uh, cohesion in the writing process. Oh, yeah. Like the cohesion point is definitely needed at, uh, you know, having everyone local. Um, I noticed that uh, a brief period, I, I tried working with Mike Browning and Damien from Nocturnus AD while I was in Texas. And what I did, um, they just did not like it because we weren't in the same jam room. I didn't know what 
they wanted on top of the music. So I sent them a couple of tracks and they didn't like the keyboards that I put on it. Um, so yeah, I think having that local aspect for a full band is definitely uh, beneficial to cohesion. Um, so it's great to see that, you know, they're, they're willing to take that step and, you know, you got one guy in North America now he's a little bit closer. So it's not going to be as much of a pain. Um, well, it, uh, what, we ended up, what we ended up doing is we're reforming. And so for the drums, uh, we've got the one and only Ronnie Palmer. That's going yeah, to be I know playing, Ronnie. You know, he's going to be playing uh, for the album and hopefully, um, you know, any you know, major shows, tours, things we've got coming down the pipeline. You know, he's uh, indicated he would be totally cool with that. Very and, cool. Uh, my good friend, Jack Goodwin from uh, Passive Possession, Promethean Horde, you know, a couple other bands I've done he is playing the other guitar and I'm actually playing bass and singing now. Whereas on the first album, I was strictly the vocalist. Yeah. And, that, uh, that makes more sense. Yeah. And so when I went over to France to do that little two week uh, or 13, 14 day tour or something like that, went did that little tour over there. Like it was very, very unusual, just kind of standing there without holding a bass. It was, uh, I, I did enjoy it, but there were times where I was like, I feel like I'm absolutely naked right now. I can see that. Especially bass just comes so naturally to you. Like, um, you make it look easy to play very complex things, which means you int intuitively know that instrument. So it's great to see you picking up the bass in that band. Um, speaking of Ronnie Palmer, you're, you were in Amon with him, correct? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Love that guy. With the Hoffman brothers. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about Amon a little bit. Um, so you're no longer in that band now, correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was really, really hoping you guys would just take off and blow DSide out of the water. Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people felt that, not least of which uh, us in the, in the band, you know, and uh, I, I get like, I, everyone knows the way that the, the Hoffmans feel about the DSide situation and about how they feel about Glenn and Steve. Yeah, there was a lot of drama that yeah. came out. Of it. Yeah, I was hoping that would just fuel the flames and let them, you know, just get all their aggression out and create another lesion you know mm -hmm. no i agree and i think that uh there was one general uh issue that kind of kept rearing its ugly head in regards to that that really i think sort of was the greatest hindrance and uh despite how talented the guy is and how nice he can be a majority of the time you know eric just it wasn't very very easy to work with him you know and anyone who's ever interacted with him online probably can pick up on a similar thing like um he's an amazing guitar player you know and i love brian hoffman to death you know he he was a, a good guy you know but it just uh the hoffman brothers don't particularly get along too well with each other and it's almost like a situation it was a dream come true for me you know and ronnie came in much much later but it was a dream come true for me right from the very beginning like back in like 2007 or 2008 whenever it was that i joined um, but after so many months, I was like, kind of, even as the new guy, I could kind of sense that we were just kind of going in circles. You know, there would be a situation where Eric would call up and he'd be like, quit your job, my friend, we're signing to metal blade records, quit your job. We're good. We're doing this. And then I would obviously hang up the phone squealing like a little girl, you know, yeah. only to talk to him the next day. And he'd be like, don't quit your job, my friend. They were trying to bullshit us the whole time, you know? And then after like years of dealing with that, I was like, man, I don't know, dude, <laughs> you know, but we, uh, we did get out and we played, I think maybe three shows, three shows in all. And, uh, I, went and to one. I was at one. I remember that it was really good. Yeah. Thanks man. Where, which one were you at? Was it the, the mug? 
Yeah, it was the the new brass mug location yeah. where uh, they kind of just stayed backstage the whole time. They didn't really mingle with anybody. Um, yeah, man. Yeah, and it was a uh, it was one of the most stressful aspects of my life because, like I said, Eric would uh, he's he's got he's got his own way of kind of doing things, and like he uh, walked right in and he said, "Oh, this will never work. Oh no, we can't do that." And then that's like. You know what I mean? It's like, what do you mean? We're about to play a show. We have to do this, you know? And it's just like little things like that, just to kind of ruffle your feathers a little bit before a performance, you know? And so after just so many years of just let down after let down after, and just inconsistency after inconsistency, you know, I just said, you know what, guys, I can't, I can't do this, man. I've got more uh, fulfilling things that I want to focus on. And that's when I kind of went on Facebook and released the official statement. I sound cheesy saying that, but I released the official resignation on facebook just to kind of let people know hey man i'm as disappointed as every single one of you right now but i don't ever see them doing anything to be honest with you and it's unfortunate uh, because the talent is certainly there and that's one of my greatest qualms with a lot of musicians uh, you know they have a great potential and they don't realize it and they don't put them in situations to realize their potential and don't take the effort to bring it out you know it's, it's disheartening seeing friends go down that path so I definitely feel your pain there. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about Amon. Um, I know you work at Dean Guitars with, uh, is it Eric? Uh, well, Brian at one time did work there. Um, he, because uh, Dean is uh, is a really family friendly place. And so like, if you if you work there for some time, you, you leave, you know, and then you come back and you shake their hand, they'll be more than willing to have you back. So both he and I, uh, you know, worked there in the past. And then we came back. He currently does not work there anymore. Um, but I've been there. This is my second time there. I've been there for, I think going on about four years. Oh, wow. I, I, love, I love it there, man. I mean, it's, uh, I have a lot of really good things to say about the experience and working there. Very um, cool. As a touring musician, I think it's just really a blessing to have them say, you know, as long as you give us the proper notice, you know, a couple of months in advance or a month in advance, if you have to go tour for a month, have fun, be safe. We'll see you when you get back, you know? Like, yeah. A lot know. of employers don't let people do that. Um, most people yeah. get like a month tops every year and they kind of have to work around that to go tour and all that. So mm -hmm. it's very good that you're in that music atmosphere for job too. Yep. Yep. I agree. And, um, and you know, that's, so uh, we've got like a really, really good staff there. Um, Chris Canella works there now, um, you know, for previous, uh, artist relations and product management from like ESP guitars and, uh, Fender and, and Jackson and so forth. And so now he works there, uh, and he's also the, uh, one of the guitar players in Deicide now. And so it's, it's pretty interesting. So it's a very, uh, uh, it's a little different now than it was some years back, you know, the, the environment at Dean, uh, I think is just a little bit more, uh, death metal than it's ever been <laughs> you yeah, know so that's cool that. yep. especially having a hoffman brother work there for a little bit yeah of course yeah um one yeah. thing uh deicide um you may know this you may not but um i know like in the early days of the tampa scene you know there was a lot of people were friends with everyone so one guy like cannibal corpse is friends with you know another guy in another band and all that and um, I know like musicians like Terry Butler make their rounds with all these different bands, but uh, um, something about Deicide and Morbid Angel, there was a split there where uh, there's never been any like photos of them together. 
I heard a story like one of the guys from Morbid Angel kept a DSI shirt on as a doormat so people would wipe their shoes on it when they entered his house, things like that. Have you heard anything about the conflict between uh, Morbid Angel and DSI? Uh, not particularly them. I, I did hear something that maybe, what was it? It was like something like Morbid Angel and Cannibal Corpse were going to do a co-headlining tour. Um, but for some reason, Morbid Angel sort of created, and, and I think when I say Morbid Angel, I think I, I really, what I mean is maybe Trey had a, a different idea of the way that it should go. Like maybe Morbid Angel should get more attention. Maybe they should get more, more money, I guess. And I'm only just like recalling like some specifics I overheard at a, at a bar or something. So I, that's really as, but as far as morbid and deicide, I can't say that I do. I, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's not entirely surprising. Like I'm friends with all the guys in deicide and I'm friends with, uh, I guess most of the guys in morbid. I mean, they've changed band members, you know, pretty frequently, but I mean, Glenn and Steve are like amazing people and I love them to death, you know? And then of course you got Chris and Kevin and Deicide. I mean, they're really good friends. Yeah. I remember Kevin, he was in order of any odd. Correct. Yeah. yeah I remember any... seeing him and uh, yeah, he's a very, very nice guy. Very yeah, approachable. Yep. Of course. And so for, for something like that, to you know, as far as I know, Dave Vent, like I, I see evil D like maybe once every couple of years or something like that. So I don't talk to him a lot, but, I've not picked up on anything uh, just out and out like, yeah, man, fuck me aside, you know. <laughs> you know, that's how Evil D talks. He's like, hey, man, how's it going? Yep. Yeah, like I, I've, I've met David Benson a couple of times and actually played one show up in Austin. His country band <laughs> played it too. Um, and so both times that I met him, like he would talk like really briefly to me, but then I got the vibe like, yeah, this guy doesn't want to talk to me at all. Um, he just wants to go off and do his own thing and, all that like i even held the the door open for his little country band to haul in or haul out their equipment mm -hmm. and yeah he wasn't really interested in talking to me so yeah it might it might be more from the david vincent camp than a morbid angel with the conflict mm -hmm. between a or trey about the conflict with deicide so um a couple more things i want to talk about with amon um you guys released that among us uh music video which is a very very high production very nice to look at um you guys are wearing that armor that a uh, grave digger made yep. um and there's also like a little ufos in the background towards the end of it. it's really interesting um what was the uh the uh, the backing for that like all the influences that went into making that video well, I guess uh, from from what I recall, like I, I wrote all the lyrics uh, for the Liar and Wait album, and uh, and to just to give you a little bit of backstory, like that particular song was not my personal pick for the video. I felt like there were a couple of others that we could have probably done just because I felt like they were just better songs on the album. Eric was dead set on doing that one. Primarily, I, can't, I think, because it was the most groovy, rhythmic, and uh, marketable. Also, Amon is in the word among. Yeah, yeah, I know. And so it's like, uh, that, and that was kind of intentional. And so it's, uh, and so the concept of the album, or mostly the album, but that definitely that song was just about the, uh, you know, what we believe, you know, some of the theories about the reptilian race and, you know, the draconians and stuff like that. So, so you, that, you, think, you think there's reptilian aliens among us? Uh, sort of, I guess it's kind of like that was the concept for the song, you know, like uh, almost like they live, you know, the movie they live. Like, they're, yeah, you know, I love they they live. It's a great uh, movie against consumerism and all that. Um, yeah, yeah. 
I'm a huge, huge fan of like sci-fi, like horror sci-fi specifically. So like uh, the thing, you know, yeah, like, the thing is a classic, dude. You know what I mean? Like Among Us, and so You're like Lovecraftian kind of, horror, because I kind of get that vibe from the thing, where it's very, very he- heavily influenced by Lovecraft, that cosmic horror. Mm-hmm. As am I, and uh, and there's a, a title tr- or a, not a title track, but there's a song on the severed uh, that is specifically geared towards that. called when he wakes and it's basically about azathoth and all that like because you know if you know lovecraft lovecraft you know that uh uh, azathoth is like basically the heart of the universe and that if he wakes up everything in existence simply ceases to exist because like you know he everything is a figment of his dream like everything we know and experience is simply a figment of azathoth's imagination so it's very 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 romantic yeah yeah, and also cannot be applied to film. So that's something that strictly resides in, you know, Lovecraftian stories. Um, you can't really depict that type of thing in a movie where you have all of reality ceasing to be when uh, the, the dreaming deity wakes up. So um, another, another thing that I noticed, a um, little humor, is that Among Us is like one of the most popular um, mobile games right now. Have you played that? Among Us, uh, Lord. <clears throat> no, I can't say I have. I didn't, uh, I guess I had, this is the first time hearing of it. <laughs> yeah, it's super, super popular where it's like a social game where a lot of people join in and you run around and you do little tasks, but one guy is a killer. So um, you're trying to guess, it's like Clue essentially, but you find a corpse and you try to piece together um, who the suspect yeah. is. Yeah, but okay. it's called Among Us. Yeah, I did hear about that. I think, I, I guess maybe it just, someone was describing it or maybe I was seeing an advertisement for it, but yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should guys or license some Amon songs for the mobile game or something. That'd be Man, hilarious. I would love, I would do that in an instant, but you know who would not do that right, in an instant? Yeah. Yep. That's just the humor. So <laughs> he'd be great. like, he'd be like, you owe me money, my friend, twice as much <laughs> money as we agreed to. <laughs> yeah, everyone's familiar with what happened with deicide and i think it was about money starting out why they left that um something they weren't getting their fair share um which i don't really know all the details and it's a lot of hearsay so i probably shouldn't get into it but uh i mean just in a nutshell like um you know in the mid mid to late 90s you know the industry overwent a change to where like less and less common was the situation to where you're in a four-piece band, you split everything four ways, no ifs, ands, or buts, whatever. But like, as you know, the turn of the century started coming around, it was like, whoever wrote the most music and certainly whoever wrote the most lyrics got the most money from the royalties. That's kind of the way it worked out. And I guess from what I understand, it just like, it kind of, they were like, nah, that shouldn't be like that. And it's like, well, this is kind of the way the industry is now. So, you know, (laughs) Anyway. Yeah, a lot of a lot of rock music and pop music is very uh, vocal driven. So I can see how like fifty percent would go to the whoever writes the lyrics and fifty percent going to the music. So yeah. yes, I can see how that would function in like mainstream music. But once you get into death metal, it's like you know every musician contributes so much to the sound that um, it would be more honest to split it four ways. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. And I think, and from what I understand, I I think that maybe uh, their productivity in terms of the musical writing process just kind of waned a little bit. And I think that it sort of 
maybe in the back end and uh, who knows? I mean, you know, cause I've heard the story from both sides of the, of the fence, you know? And so both sides make sense to a degree, but it's just kind of like a political argument at that point. It's like, you know, who deserves what, you know, it's, it's all here. It's all hearsay based on what side of the fence you just are kind of standing on, you know? Yeah. It's really unfortunate. Of course, mm-hmm. Deicide wrote some of the most influential death metal, of the first three albums. So it's very, very unfortunate that they just dissolved like that. And, broke up and the Hoffman brothers went their own way. So uh, one more thing about Amon. Um, everyone that I know in my circle, especially the Tampa circle, has seen that video of you guys up on stage with George Fisher, Corpse Grinder from Cannibal Corpse. Oh, yeah. And George Fisher calls you the future of metal. What are your thoughts on that? That... Uh... Uh, that night ended up becoming one of the most hilarious experiences of my life uh, for, for all the right reasons, you know? So it's uh, it, that particular moment. I think uh, when that happened, it's, it didn't I, like on stage, I didn't hear exactly what he said, you know, me and George or George and I are like really, really good friends and we, we live close to each other and we hang out frequently, you know, we, you know, do our thing, but like, um, you know, he came up and he gave me the bro hug and he said that it didn't occur to me what he said until I later watched the video and someone pointed it out to me. I was like, oh, hell, you know, and so honestly, man, it's just it was just one of the greatest honors of my life in terms of just being, you know, once again, just a kid from Tennessee, you know, yeah. coming down and I grew up and uh, he he and Glenn <clears throat> actually taught me how to do death metal growls, and death metal vocals even though that I had never even met them at that point, it was just like, I listened to what they were doing and I physically forced myself to keep doing it and keep doing it. Despite how much blood I was tasting, it didn't matter. You know, I just wanted to, to build myself up to where I could sound like that. And of course I sound different, but to have someone who literally taught me the way to become, you know, someone who would be worthy to follow in his footsteps, like that was just a really great honor, I guess is all I can say about it, you know? Yeah, Cannibal Corpse is the most successful death metal band. I, I believe they, they're all, all salaried through Metal Blade, too. Like, the only yeah. death metal band to be on a salary. Crazy. Um, yeah, awesome. but they, they always do these massive tours, and they always book, you know, pretty decent-sized venues. And, um, and they're very, very proficient at performance. So they have a great stage presence, and their music's super well-rehearsed. I never heard them play the wrong note. So it's definitely a great compliment that their singer comes up and gives you such a such a statement like that where, you know, the future of metal, whether it's tongue or cheek or not, you know, it's, it's a huge compliment. I think so. And, uh, and I just wanted to do what I can to make sure that the world knows that I'm still serious about what I'm doing. You know, it's, it's never anything I'm going to take for granted. You know, and so um, with this Blight Mass album coming out, the hope is that we can push it to the next to the next level in terms of just jumping on like a really good tour as a supporting act. Um, I've got a couple of friends in the industry that have told me, you know, Hey man, you get blight mass up and going like in America and we'll take you on tour. It's not a problem, you know? And so that's, uh, and so it's almost like a foregone conclusion. We just got to make sure we take all the right steps, finish the album, get everything in line, get, you know, and so that's uh, yeah. I always kind of thought you would take off with death metal and end up being, you know, super successful in some of the bigger names um, just by number one, you know, how great of a musician and singer you are on uh, number two, the way you carry yourself is super professional. Um, you're, 
super easy to talk to and you know there, i don't think there's a mean bone in your body um so you're super approachable and i just thought you were the the total package that you would just keep rising rising and rising so hopefully this blight mass can do that for you you get out there more um and you know create come out that new album and start hitting it hard again and maybe you'll get that recognition that i thought you always deserved yeah, i appreciate that man like i said i know um you know, just to kind of turn the, turn it back towards you, man. I mean, they're, you're the only person that I know that can play keyboards like goat craft. You know what I mean? Like, it's really, really, you know, I, I wish you were a local guy, you know, cause I know we would hang out way, way more than we, uh, you know, obviously can now, but uh, you know, the compliments that you're giving me, I, I take them wholeheartedly and I greatly appreciate it. I just want to extend my, uh, my arm of respect for you as well, my friend. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, not really talking about GooCraft that much on this podcast, but more as just a general musician that knows you. Sure, um, sure. So let's talk about After Death a little bit. So I mentioned earlier that uh, I believe we met at a show in St. Petersburg. I forgot who was playing. It might have been Creator or something. I don't remember. But, uh, um, and uh, it brought you in the jam room. And just immediately clicked. Um, and one of the funniest memories I have from that band um, with you in it was it was Mike Browning, um, Damian Heftel, and myself. I, we're sitting out on Mike's front porch, and you drive up in a Mini Cooper blasting Phil Collins and playing air drums, just going all out. Um, <laughs> it was, it was, I hadn't seen, you know, a death metal guy do something like that and you know, at that point in my life. So it kind of brings me to like another question. Um, what are your influences outside of metal? Oh man, that's, that's one of my favorite questions ever. Um, <clears throat> definitely uh, just a one small correction. I think it was actually one of those Scion XAs. It wasn't a mini cover, but it was that little baby shoe looking Scion thing. You yeah. know, that's, those things are awesome. But uh, influences not metal related, definitely Phil Collins. You know, I'm a huge, huge fan of like a, uh, just a good, yeah i mean you know that and um i've always been a sucker for like love songs i don't know it sounds really cheesy but like 1980s chicago you know what i mean like peter cetera i'm a huge yeah i'm cringing a little bit right now <laughs> no i know i know <clears throat> and so it's uh that and then i've got things like if i was i don't know like i'm a huge huge fan of like old classic country music you know being from tennessee it's kind of something that you know, I grew up in the same neck of the woods that Dolly Parton is from. So it's mm. sort of like she, to me, is like the Statue of Liberty. You know what I mean? How would you compare David Vincent to Dolly Parton? I would say considering Dolly Parton is accredited for writing over 3,000 songs, literally, that uh, he is. Hello? Oh, he broke up a little bit. Uh says my internet connection is unstable. So sorry about that. Um, I'll pick okay. up the audio um, after we're done. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so the last thing I heard was David Vincent was from North Carolina, North Carolina. That's right. 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 So grotesque records up there. And he brought Morbid Angel up there to record yeah, yeah. abominations of desolation. Yep. <laughs> and uh, yeah. He, um, and so I think uh, from what I recall, <clears throat> excuse me, if he, I think what he told me was he got his start playing like upright bass and sort of like a bluegrass band. And so I, I think it's interesting that, uh, the kind of country music that he's doing with his project uh, currently, I'm not the biggest fan of just that genre of kind of like rockabilly type stuff. 
Um, but it's not so far of a stretch from his actual roots, from what I understand. You know, it's like uh, he kind of got his start in sort of bluegrassy type stuff and then like went into the metal a little bit later on. And so it's kind of, you know, so maybe to him, it's sort of like more of a return to kind of his inner childhood or whatever. But yeah, you know, like I guess um, older country, anything that came after like the mid 90s, I am not a fan of like I, I don't even, you know. And so when people get on Facebook or whatever now and they're like, man country music blows i'm like yeah of course it does like <laughs> listen to what they're putting out as country music now it's garbage yeah, it's all about drinking budweiser your pickup truck breaking down your dog dying i know i know and uh you know everyone knows that you can have your dog turned into a cyborg these days and it'll never die you know actually elon musk is trying to do that to monkeys um <laughs> he's trying to do uh brain implants to where they can actually control like something if they're their minds so um cyborgs are into works right now so there could be cyborg dogs cyborg you know country music you know that'll be crazy but uh um one thing about country music is is that it's distinctly american um yeah. like jazz is distinctly american so that's like the main thing it has going for it um in my opinion um, but when it comes to the actual music it's it's not really complex. There's not much going on with a lot you're of right. it. So, yeah, you're correct. And I think, uh, you know, like old older folks like uh, Cal Smith, Ernest Tubb, you know, Randy Travis, even like Hank Hank Williams, you know, like they just had like, uh, you know, their their issues were very few and far between, but they were potent. They were very potent issues that they sung about. You know, the typical stuff like. Uh, heartbreak and not being able to pay your bills and you know getting too drunk and then regretting it for the rest of your life you know that sort of thing so it was like yeah, yeah it's very empirical empirical like mundane topics mm -hmm. cool 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 um so another thing um do you still work at precision merch uh i do not actually it's um i worked there for uh, it was a couple of years maybe it was like two years I worked there and I'm, I'm grateful for the experience that I got because I had never had any uh, um, uh, affiliations with screen printing or any experience in the industry so it was cool it was cool to learn and to kind of see what happens throughout that process because what you can do is you can go on tour or anywhere and you can be like wow they're charging $25 for that shirt and it's a three color print and that's a Jildon basic Tea. So it's basically what you tell yourself is that's a $4 product and they're charging $25 for it. So it's kind of like high profit. You, yeah. Yeah. It gives you that inside scoop, you know? Yeah. And I noticed uh, the great thing about precision merch, which I've ordered uh, merchandise from them is that number one, it's high quality. Um, number two, it's cheap compared to the, the competitors. Um, so it's high quality. It's affordable. Um, and the service is quick. So you get your shirt super quick. I know Nick, um, he even offers like bands that are on the road, like, Hey, if you run out of merch, I can, you know, do a batch for you real quick and get it out to you. So definitely yeah. one of the, the best, uh, screen printing, uh, companies I've, I've encountered personally. Yeah. You know, and I, um, I'm really proud of, of Nick and Sabrina, you know, husband, wife, you know, for doing that. They, uh, they started that, that business from the ground up. And I know that uh, over the past year, businesses left and right have just been in dire straits. You know, everyone knows that. So I think that they're just sort of, uh, you know, they're holding down the fort. 
Um, it was kind of waiting for things to hopefully get back to normal, you know, at some point or later, um, just like many businesses, but, uh, yeah, they, you know, they really take a lot of pride in it and, um, you know, they, they've got my support, you know, I just want to see them be successful just like with anything. You know? yeah, Sabrina used to work at, uh, the brass mug in Tampa. Cause I remember seeing her at the old location back when I lived there. Um, she would always serve me beer and all that. Nick hung out there a lot. Kind of like your your circle of friends there. It's like the the meetup place seems to be like the brass mug. Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, Antar uh, from Diabolic Blastmasters. He is literally the first or like one of the first people I met when I walked into the brass mug. You know, so I met him. I met Nick Goodyear there. I've met like so so many people there. I I have too. Yeah, I remember uh, meeting Jack Owen um, one time, and I was like 20 years old or 21. So I was 21. Um, and, uh, you know, pretty lit from drinking beer. And I was hanging out with him, and it was Mother's Day. My mom calls me, and I was like, I don't feel like talking to my mom. So I just gave the phone to uh, Jack Owen, and Jack Owen talked to my mom for a while and told her happy Mother's Day for me and all that. So, um, yeah, it's super interesting, the characters that you run into at the Brass Mug. Uh, seeing Pete Sandoval and all of that there. So uh, um, it's kind of like the the hangout spot in uh, Tampa, you definitely run into some of the quote unquote legends of death metal there. Yeah, you definitely do. And uh, that's about uh, it, it, whether it was the mug or not. I mean, it's like I hang out at the mug with the legends to this day, you know, only now I'm on a first name basis with a lot of them. And so it's just, uh, you know, that's exactly the reason I moved here. Had I ever known that it would come to this level, I would have probably been peeing my pants as a teenager thinking about it, you know, but uh, I peed in my pants when I moved back there um, the first time, you know, just the sheer amount of high profile musicians that you run into there and that are willing to just hang out and just chill. It's incredible compared to any other place I've been to like in Texas, you know, we, we have, you know, some high profile musicians here, like, you know, we have Absu um, and things like that, but uh not on that level of the Tampa scene. So it's definitely unique to that one geographic location. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and uh, I mean, well, in Texas, you do have King Diamond. So that's definitely quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. But he doesn't hang out at little bars. I know, man. That's like, like I'm such a huge King Diamond fan. But um, yeah, you know. Cool, cool, cool. So we, we've touched upon a lot of things so far in the podcast. Um, so you, you brought up Diabolic. I know you're in that band. You did uh, bass and vocals as well as Blastmasters, um, which uh, I had heard Blastmasters in Texas, and then you know I relocated to Florida. So I already kind of knew who you were. So when I met you, I was like, oh, this guy's fucking cool. So um, yeah, you're definitely a great addition when we brought you in After Death. Um, so very fortunate that you're a part of that process. And it was just really cool. Like we pounded out so many songs so quickly in a short amount of time that uh, it's just crazy. Like we just had a lot of very uh, savvy musicians all in the same jam room. It was that. And it was a lot of really, uh, really good chemistry because I absolutely loved, uh, you know, jamming with you guys and, you know, Damien, like amazing dude, one of the most kind hearted people on earth. Same can be said about Mike Browning. Um, you know, and I think, uh, that like, if I had known then what I knew now, I would probably have been a little bit more, um, patient with, with the process, I guess, if that's the right kind of a word, because I think yeah. 
when it came to me sort of stepping out of that fold, it was because a lot of like the way that I felt about it and like, the input that I was getting from people around me was like, man, after death is really, really good. But like what's going on, like with the vocal section, you know what I mean? And so it was, it was not to take anything away from, from what Mike was doing. But well, Mike, was, Mike was wanting to take a more clean approach to vocals so people can right, understand right. what he was saying better. Um, and looking back on it, it's not really bad vocals, um, but no, no, no. It's, it's not that distinctive. But um, the, the great thing about Mike Browning is that he's super freaking creative. So he was able oh, yeah. to describe some of the most interesting lyrics ever. And not to mention just how proficient he is on drums. Like, I remember walking in one day to practice. And, you know, I went up to Mike and I'm like, hey, can you do a gravity blast? He was like, what's a gravity blast? So we talk about what a gravity blast is, where you kind of play on the rim a little bit to get that double hit. And uh, I think you use your wrists. Um, and I came back to the next practice and he was doing a freaking gravity blast. So he's definitely a yeah. very proficient musician. and. The great thing about Mike is you know what you get with Mike um, is very straightforward. And I like that in people. Um, and I'm glad that, you know, Nocturnus AD is starting to get some recognition now and um, their albums seem to do really well, getting good reviews and um, they're playing a lot of festivals, you know, of course not right now with COVID, but right. after that's over, I definitely see them doing like a, a lot of the bigger festivals again. Um, yeah. Yeah, so after that, it was great to play in and, you know, get, you know, we're all pretty young then, too. So I think if we were older and more mature and looked back at it, you know, more holistically, uh, perhaps we probably would have stayed in the band. I, I lost my job in Florida and ended up moving to Texas and then joining the military. Um, I always kind of regretted that because, you know, right when I did that, I was, I finished basic training. And then I was in tech school and freaking, you know, Mike and Damien and Belial were headlining a European tour. They had a double-decker bus and they're sending me all the pictures and all that. And I was just like, man, I wish I was with them. You know, no, just man, it, hindsight. I'm really, yeah, I'm really, really proud of, uh, of what they've accomplished with Nocturnus AD. And uh, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, uh, Nocturnal, the guy that's doing the keys currently, he's definitely got what he needs to. to no, Nocturnal's out. Um, he has some backlash with the me too oh, wait movement. wait you're right yeah. i do remember that my bad so do, do you know do they have a solid replacement or is that Kyle yeah his name is josh Aldrin, i think oh my bad my <laughs> lord yeah i do know josh too man i feel like an idiot right now but hey you know what's a good interview without feeling like an idiot at least once? Oh, you've done pretty good so far so one little <laughs> slip up isn't bad all right so i think we're gonna wrap up this podcast um we were able to talk about a lot of different interesting things about your background and all that. So definitely want to thank you for doing this interview. Of course, man. And I, uh, I definitely appreciate you bringing me on for it. Uh, and if uh, anything comes up in the future and you need help with a round table, let me know. I feel oh, like excellent. A, Great idea. I feel like I'm a pro at this zoom meeting stuff. Now this is my first one, first time doing it. So I mean, uh, <laughs> excellent. Thank you again, Jesse. You got it, my friend. We'll be in touch. Okay. We'll do. Bye. You are listening to Necropolis on Hessian Firm. Please visit hessianfirm.com for metal reviews, interviews, analyses, lifestyle articles, as well as releases from the label.